Attention North Korea portfolio professionals. Are you in need of more than just sloppy and spotty South Korean news coverage on the DPRK? If so, I present to you NK Pro. Born from the established news gathering reputation of NK News, NK Pro leverages staff experience and top-notch technology to provide subscribers with superior knowledge and tools to achieve their goals. Expect daily analysis, exclusive tools, and a suite of research tools that cover everything from North Korean state media to the whereabouts of DPRK vessels and aircraft. How cool is that? In a world where the landscape of North Korea seems unknowable to many, NK Pro cuts through the noise and provides you with the quality, reliability, and timeliness you need. Stay ahead, stay informed, and master the landscape with NK Pro. Trust me, it's a game changer. Interested? Visit nknews.org/professionals to claim your free 30-day trial of NK Pro. Once again, that's nknews.org/professionals. podcast listeners and welcome to the NK News podcast. This is recorded on Tuesday, the 3rd of October, uh, which in Korea is uh, uh, or Heaven's Opening Day. I think it's the day when Tangun came all the way down from uh, heaven to uh, start the Korean race on earth. And I'm on the line here from my vacation destination in the Netherlands with uh, managing editor of NK News, Brian Betts. Brian, welcome. Hey, Jacko. So what have I missed out on in the last week uh, while I've been gallivanting around the Netherlands? Well, you you missed the South Korea's Chuseok holiday, for one. Uh-huh. But while the uh, the holiday season is usually a slow news time, it was hardly that for us this past week. I think the big news came out just as we were heading into Chuseok uh, Wednesday night. North Korea announced that they were going to expel Travis King from the country. Yeah, that was big news. That was so big that it even reached me here in my uh, my vacation bubble. People were uh, texting me story yeah. links. So that was, uh, I was surprised, well, kind of surprised, but certainly uh, happy to to see the news. It's good news for Travis King and his family. And mm-hmm. it, yeah, for sure. It, it's interesting that North Korea didn't choose to, to use him in some kind of a hostage diplomacy. Yeah, we kind of predicted that they might do something like this. So what happened was they they announced that they were going to expel him. And then a little bit later that night, Seoul time, the U.S. said uh, King was in in U.S. custody. Mm. It turns out they transferred him over to the U.S. sort of via China at at Dandong. And then from from Dandong, King was transported by a U.S. medical plane to Shenyang and then on to the Osan Air Base in uh, South Korea. And then from there on to uh, to Texas. So he did fly. He did transit through South Korea eventually, but not back across the the demilitarized zone, which is how he got there in the first place. Right, not back to the DMZ. Um, yeah. They went through China. Choice. Yeah, they. So North Korea had said that King sought sort of refuge in a in North Korea or a third country. Mm. And so because of that, we had kind of looked at, uh, looked at okay, where could where could King end up? if he right. ends up getting sent to a third country. Obviously, China would be one of the main options, being a, a North Korea's ally and neighbor. Um, mm-hmm. Russia would have been another possibility. Right, it, it could, could have, have become like Snowden's neighbor. Yeah, exactly. It's not clear exactly why 
they opted for this route, but it's, I mean, you know, it, it probably has to do with a bunch of factors that we we talked about from when he when he first went over, which is that he's a fairly low level yeah. soldier. He doesn't have a lot of intelligence value. He got right. himself in legal trouble, you know, so there may be some personality traits or something like that that North Korea yeah. was not fond of. Possible he had some mental health issues. Just it just doesn't seem they they saw much value in keeping him around. You know, they've done that in the past for other high profile uh, mm. Americans who who went over and they've sort of used them as a propaganda piece, you know, they, to yeah. uh, to to attack the US and all that. Yeah. I mean I I uh certainly at the start i i remember thinking that i remember thinking um for these reasons the ones that you just mentioned they'll probably yeah. hand it back pretty quick but as that went on you know as as uh, days became weeks and became two months i actually began to hold less hope for that i thought oh you know we may be back to uh, to previous patterns so that's why i kind of really was surprised that uh, in the end given that they'd held him for so long that they just uh, handed mm-hmm. him over so quickly yeah it doesn't seem to be an indicator of any desire for dialogue or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I know there's some speculation in South Korean media about that. But yeah, it really just seems like they, they didn't see much value in holding on to him. And they just saw him as, as more trouble than he was worth to, to keep. Right. I, I will so give out a shout out to uh, John Delury, who uh, basically predicted what happened when we talked to him about huh. the possibility of a release to China a couple of weeks ago. And he said, yeah, China's if China gets him, they're not going to hold on to him. They'll, they'll probably hand him over back to the U.S. And uh, that's what happened. So, Hi, John, if you're listening. He, he wrote an excellent book about a, uh, uh, an American detainee in China during the, uh, the early years of the Cold War. I've forgotten the title now, but it's a great book. Everyone should read that. Yeah, we have a review of that uh, on our website. Yeah, you do indeed. Okay, so yeah. what, what else? Uh, what, what's another story that's uh, been high on the charts? So this one kind of got buried, but the South Korean Constitutional Court hmm. ruled last Tuesday that the anti-leaflet law, what's commonly called the anti-leaflet law, is un- unconstitutional. Ah. And you remember, this is the law, I believe it was passed in, I think it went into, into place in, in spring of 2021, ah, okay. but it, it bans the sending of leaflets uh, across the inter-Korean border. So made it illegal for activists in South Korea to send balloons and bottles with rice and USB sticks and, and things like that over into North Korea. Right. So the Constitutional Court said this was against the South Korean Constitution, and they specifically focused in on the fact that it was a sort of viola- violation of uh, freedom of expression. Huh. And um, that was sort yeah. of the, the, the thing they took issue with. Well, okay, so they're really coming out strong on, uh, on freedom of expression there. I wonder... If the constitutional court would be uh, equally strong on freedom of expression, if people were, you know, writing, say, pro North Korea things on a South Korean website, for example, or making uh, YouTube videos or TikToks that, uh, you know, uh, in praise of uh, uh, of Kim Jong Un. I know that's against the national security law, but there are people mm-hmm. throughout the years who have said that the national security law itself is against the freedom of expression and therefore unconstitutional. So. It, yeah. it kind of puts them in a bind a little bit. Yeah, a few things on that is uh, actually the, the same day the Constitu- Constitutional Court ruled that the National Security Act, which, oh. as you know, is the infamous law that allows for sort of crackdowns on sort of pro-North Korean expressions of, of pro-North Korean sentiment and things like right. that. They, they ruled that it's constitutional. Um, and this in was a like separate case time. or in the same case? As the in, a se- in a separate case. In a huh. separate case. But on the same day, um, you say? It's, you know, the, the, on the same day. And, you wow. know, the NS, National Security Act has been challenged 
many, many times over the years. I think it was the eighth time or something like that that the yeah. Constitu constitutional court had um, had ruled on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, every time they've said that the laws is legal. Oh, okay. Well, that's I, I, so. I guess one thing interesting to note about the the leaflet law or the anti-leaflet law and, and what mm. the court had to say about it, though, is so while they took issue with the freedom of expression, they really focused in particular on the fact that law stipulates quite harsh penalties for mm -hmm. for violating it. And this was what they kind of took issue with as as constraining freedom of expression. So under mm -hmm. the law, you can be fined by up to um, 30 million won, which is Ooh. like twenty five thousand yeah. dollars or up to three years in prison. But what they didn't object to was the the need to have some sort of monitoring of of leaflet launches and things of that sort in wow. order to protect the security of border residents. Because that was the whole kind of justification for this this leaflet law in the, in the first place was mm. that North Korea doesn't like it. It increases inter-Korean tensions. It puts people in border areas in danger. The court said basically that's legitimate. Mm -hmm. But these sort of heavy fines and stuff like that are not. Right. And it said basically it's it's okay for the police to require, you know, like advanced notification from activists and stuff like that ahead of uh -huh. leaflet launches. Has there been any, uh, have you seen if there's been any statement from uh, Pakistan Hak or other groups that uh, they're going to uh, ramp up uh, launches with or without government monitoring? Yeah, we talked to uh, a bunch of different activists who have been involved in these sorts of launches, including Pak Sang-ak, and ah. they all welcomed the ruling, as you would expect. Sure. They didn't give really any indication that they're going to ramp things up, but more that you know they would continue what they've been doing all along. The anti-lethal law didn't stop Pak and others from, from doing launches over the last few years, even though Pak himself was indicted over it. Yeah. And... So I, I don't know that much changed there. And, you know, and also the UN administration has not been particularly um, active about enforcing the law since right. um, UN took office. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it, it kind of aligns with uh, with UN's own personal politics a little bit. So uh, I could see that happening. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, just to go back and, and ask a question I should have asked before on the on the Travis King story. Sure. Has he spoken yeah. publicly since he's uh, released? He's not. So uh, all we know, last update we got, uh, from the uh, U.S. Department of Defense is that he is in the U.S. Uh, military's custody in, in uh, Texas. He's going mm -hmm. undergoing what they call a, a reintegration program. Mm. He's getting health screenings, mental health screenings, and stuff like that. I'm sure right. they're going to kind of debrief him on his time in uh, North Korea and what did he tell them and, and all of that stuff. And... Do, do experts After that, a, uh, some yeah. kind of a trial? Uh, what do you call it? A, a military, uh, a military court trial? Yeah, it's 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 quite possible. Not only was he he was already in trouble, as you know, before right. he he went over North Korea, and that seems to be one of the things that drove him to to cross the border. Yeah. And then, but the crossing the border itself is in violation of you know U.S. law, and you know it's basically uh, uh, what's the word? You know, abandoning. Oh, going AWOL, away your, without leave. Yeah, going AWOL. Desertion, yeah. Desertion, yeah. Oh. Desertion, exactly. Um, so it's possible he could face additional penalties. It's also possible that given the profile of the case and the fact that he was in, you know, North Korean custody for a couple months, mm. that there may be, perhaps there would be some leniency shown on those grounds. Right. We don't know. The Pentagon is refusing to comment on that right now. I think they're just focused on... Uh, on letting him uh, or getting him through this uh, reintegration program first. Okay. And lastly, has there been a uh, Supreme People's Assembly meeting in North Korea this week? There has been a Supreme People's Assembly meeting. 
Now, that's the uh, sometimes it's called the rubber stamp parliament in North Korea. Um, is that a fair characterization? I think so. I mean, we don't know a lot about the inner workings of it, mm -hmm. but it has been generally described that that way. I think the important thing for us is just what comes out of it, mm. um, because regardless of how the decisions are arrived at, um, they do tell us something about the priorities of the uh, government right. and the party. And so the big thing that came out of this one was, uh, well, one, Kim Jong-un gave a speech and had a lot of stuff to say about the nuclear program and defending the program and justifying it in, in all the usual terms as a uh, you know, necessary response to uh, U.S. hostility and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I guess kind of the interesting new thing is that as in a kind of symbolic move, they sort of revised their constitution to reflect some of their changes in, in their nuclear policy over the last year. You may remember that they enshrined this new nuclear doctrine last year, mm. last September, almost exactly a year ago, right. that allowed for preemptive strikes on non-nuclear states if North Korea judges that it is uh, under threat or if the life of the leader is uh, under threat mm, boy. And, and many other things. But anyway, the, the, the constitutional revision introduced this language that refers to North Korea as a, a quote, responsible nuclear state. Mm. Um, wow. And just a further sort of enshrining of all these changes that we've been seeing. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a big step. There. Although I have heard it said to me over the years by uh, various North Korean uh, experts and academics that the constitution, you know, I mean, while technically being uh, a foundational document in any country, is simply not that important in North Korea. Yeah, I don't know that it's like, it's not to say it couldn't be changed or that, you know, North Korea, if Kim Jong un wanted to, he could, he could reverse course. But I think. For one, North Korea still likes to present itself as this country that's ruled by law, even if though in, yeah. in, in practice, we know that's it's not typically the case. Um, and two, it's just it's it's messaging. It's we've in our supposed to be our most important sort of uh, law. We have stated as a fact that we are a responsible nuclear state and and that's not changing. So it's certainly would make any discussion about denuclearization more difficult. Yeah if and when they were to resume. Right, now that's a good point. Wow. Okay, well, thank you for bringing me up to speed there, uh, Brian. And uh, listeners, uh, stay tuned, because after this break, I'll be talking to Professor Stephen Denny about information flows into North Korea. Stay tuned. Imagine having the most wide-ranging news, analysis, and opinion on North Korea at your fingertips. Sounds great, right? Well, it's possible with NK News. They publish a truly diverse selection of unique articles every business day and provide you with valuable newsletters and alerts. Opinion writers and journalists include regular podcast guests like Andre Lankov, Jongmin Kim, Chad O'Carroll, Colin Zwerko, Niels Weisenzer, Peter Ward, and Shreyas Reddy. And because I know you'll love the product as much as I do, here's something special for you. Use the code PODCAST to get a $100 discount on your subscription. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org discount. That's nknews.org discount. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for NK News today and get ahead of the headlines on North Korea.
For this week's long interview, I'm joined here in the NK News studio by Dr. Stephen Denny, who is visiting Seoul from Vienna. He is a lecturer in East Asian Economy and Society at the University of Vienna and holds a PhD in Political Science from the University of Toronto. He researches citizenship and migration, entrepreneurship and democracy and authoritarianism. I guess these are uh, two sides or flip sides of the same coin. Find him on Twitter at StephenDenny86. Welcome on the show, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you. I can't believe it's taken this long to get you on the show. I'm glad that it's happening, though. Uh, we'll be talking about some uh, products that you've written in the last year or two on the fields of information, dissemination, and networks in North Korea. Before we do, though, first of all, how do you describe the type of work that you do as an academic? What kind of research do you do, and how do you carry it out? I would classify myself first and foremost as a scholar of migration and governance. I have secondary and tertiary interests. Sometimes they overlap, as you suggested. Sometimes they do not. I'm also interested in the study of democracy and authoritarianism, as are many political scientists. Mm. The way I carry out my work is primarily through what you might call quantitative means or methods, and that is using surveys and survey experiments, of which we'll talk about a little bit here in a, in a moment. Yeah. And then I do, you know, old-fashioned stuff on the ground observation, interviews, and uh, sort of deep understanding of the countries that I'm interested in and that I study, like Korea, North and South. Now, I confess that I'm a little bit slow when it comes to reading academic papers with statistical information, as you mentioned, quantitative, uh, re quantitative research, uh, representing in, in graph forms. So I'll need you to simplify some of that to make sense to me, if not to our highly educated audience. So let's begin with a uh, report that you and Dr. Peter Ward wrote for uh, NGOs and published in January last year called Information Dissemination in North Korea. And this is a theme that we've dealt with generally on this podcast a, a number of times, and it always reminds me of something that Lothar de Maizière, the first and last democratically elected minister president of East Germany, said when he was visiting Seoul in 2004 or 5. He said that in order to promote change in North Korea, South Korea and the outside world should be sending information into North Korea about the outside world. So why don't we start by having you tell us why, uh, what's important about this topic? Why is it worth revisiting and, and looking at it from numerous angles and at different points in time? Good question. I'll answer it in two ways. The first is a more academic way. Uh, we want to understand the importance of information in different types of political systems, in this case, in a highly autocratic system like North Korea, which is effectively shut off from the world, has basically no internet access for its citizenry. Therein, we can study the relationship between peoples and how they do or do not share information, whether they do or do not you know, consume information and why what that tells us about the relationship, social relationships, the relationship between the people and state authorities and other related questions. Second is there's a more normative perspective here, which I think the quote we were kind of leaning into here, which is uh, information is freedom. And I wouldn't shy away from it. I'm a supporter of liberty and people's freedom to choose to live their life as they see fit, of democratic pluralism and the like. And I have a normative sort of commitment to understanding and or promoting that principle in the case of North Korea. North Koreans, as we know, are they live under highly repressive conditions where their access to information is tightly controlled. We'll get into that more in a second, mm. I'm sure. So I wish to, with my colleagues in academia, among activists and other NGOs who seek to send information in for the purposes of promoting freedom in North Korea to the extent that we can, I'm interested in supporting that. Okay, so does that cross the line between academia and activism? 
sometimes, sure. I'm not trying to draw a bright line between the two. Mm -hmm. I think that we can have activist proclivities. We can have normative commitments. I think most political scientists in the United States and elsewhere are committed to the principle of democracy. And when it's under threat, they get concerned. Well, I'm not necessarily looking to promote democracy per se in North Korea. That's a much bigger undertaking. But I am sort of committed to certain principles of freedom and human rights. I think that we can bring our social scientists toolkit to quote unquote objectively study questions that may promote a vision of North Korea that is more free. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should shy away from those two overlapping. In yeah. this case, I'm certainly not. Now, this report that you and Peter Ward put together, what question were you seeking to answer and, and which kind of NGOs were you writing for? They sort of on the human rights front or the humanitarian area of, of helping people in North Korea? This would be the NGOs that are interested in sort of human rights promotion Mm -hmm. through information dissemination. Through information, there's a a sort of freedom achieved in terms of people knowing about the outside world, the ability to understand their conditions, and also just to learn about the outside world and to be entertained. There's a type of mundane freedom in just watching a drama, uh, South Korean or otherwise. And so we, we worked very closely with these type of NGOs to understand what they want to know. And then we brought to our table our toolkit to help them better understand it. And then to also answer questions that we were interested in as academics. What was the chief among those questions? Was it how to best disseminate information into North Korea? Or am I putting words in your mouth there? No, no, that is definitely a question we were interested in. I would, I would reformulate it just slightly. What are the, the determinants of information dissemination? In autocracies or under autocratic conditions, and specifically in the case of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you research this question? Obviously, you can't ask people in North Korea, or can you? I cannot. Mm. And anyone who is, you're not getting very good data. Sometimes, you know, we will see so-called interviews in the streets of Pyongyang, but that's problematic. People are certainly not free to answer questions that are being asked by researchers of any type in North Korea. So no, we're not really free to distribute surveys. There's no panel company distributing surveys in in North Korea on on behest of researchers, so we have to look for alternatives. Okay. And what, what does that mean in this case? In this case, this means engaging those who were born and raised in North Korea, but have since resettled and elsewhere. In this case, those who have resettled in, in South Korea, we know them. They are the group of North Korean refugees, North mm-hmm. Korean escapees, defectors. I like migrant. I mm-hmm. prefer to refer them as North Korean migrants who have left their place of birth and have sought resettlement elsewhere for what is almost always a better life. And they're here now. So they are from North Korea. They are of North Korean origins. Yep. And we, like many others, look to them to understand what is going on in North Korea, as problematic as that is. Now, when you did this research, do you have sort of a, a cutoff, like, you know, must have been in North Korea in the last 10 years or something? Do you have some sort of a time cutoff there? We do, to the extent that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, recruitment is always a challenge. Mm. So in this case, we were able to recruit people who have been in, in South Korea no more than five years who were recent arrivals to South Korea and were basically sort of fully socialized into North Korea. They they were born there and they grew up and they had spent a significant portion of their life. They are North Koreans to an extent, yes. Did it matter if they were in an intermediary country, say China, for a long time? We tried to um, mitigate exposure in between. Mm -hmm. As those who are familiar with the topic will know, you can't just walk across the DMZ. Yeah. And the most common route for defection, as it is called, is across the Sino-North Korean border, mm-hmm. which then requires you to be in China for some amount of time. Our survey takers, uh, respondents, had not spent very much time in China. 
Now, under the 2020 reactionary ideology and culture exclusion law in North Korea, what kinds of information is North Korea specifically wary of and closed off to, and why? It codifies bans on foreign media and strengthens what were already pretty harsh sentences for the consumption and distribution of any media from the outside. This is meant to control the information landscape in North Korea such that its citizens only consume state-sanctioned media, state-produced and or sanctioned media. Okay, so that anything from South Korea would be covered by that too? Definitely. Right, okay. Now, tell us about civil society. What is it? Does it exist in North Korea? Not really. Not, not in any meaningful sense can we say that it exists in North Korea. And what, what does it mean? Non-state associational life. In its purest sense, mm. a book club where you and I may sit down with our friends and read uh, the latest Ian McEwan novel and talk about it mm-hmm. as free citizens associating amongst ourselves away from the state. Okay, but if there's one person in that book club who is writing reports to the Ministry of State Security, then it's no longer a part of civil society. That's, an, inter- that's an interesting hypothetical. Uh, yeah, uh, just trying to make it real. I suppose that would be the state infiltration of a mm. civil society group, and, and in the North Korean context, that would be bad news for the people there. Right. So to what extent does the concept of civil society hold promise for the spread of information in that country, and, and to what extent is it limited? Well, civil society holds great potential for the spread of any information anywhere, uh, good or bad information. We're to right, quote unquote, it, good or bad. It's basically just people talking together without the government being there. In a sense, and it's defined by what uh, sociologists and others call weak ties. Mm. Weak ties is, you know, you and I, Jocko, we've known each other for a number of years. More than 10. More than 10 colleagues yeah. and friends. We have a strong tie. Right. But, you know, through the, our associations, I make weak ties. I, you introduce me to someone I don't really know, and that's a new connection, and it gives me access to a whole other expansive network. Those are kind of the basis of, of civil society, is the ability to associate, say, through a book club or football club or what have you, something which introduces you to many other people. Okay, so a regular customer in a store could be a weak tie, for example. Could be. Mm. All right, so I want to go through the uh, the key takeaways from your uh, report for the NGOs with you one by one and get you to comment briefly on each. That's an interesting way to, to look at it. Uh, so number one, you said that North Korea's information control strategy minimizes general social trust. Mm. What effects does this have? Well, those of us who have spent time studying North Korea who have been there know that it's, it's a low-trust society where the rumor mill turns vigorously and where you have a society that is deeply penetrated by a multiple number of state institutions from the so-called Inminban, these sort of neighborhood watch groups, mm. to uh, party apparatuses and state apparatuses akin to the Stasi that are there to monitor citizen activity to make sure nothing's transgressing the state laws or norms, and that creates a sense of distrust among people. So there's a lot of like particular trust between friends and family, but not with others with whom you may have a so-called weak tie. Why you may be, it may be very hard to trust them because you don't know if they're going to report you to the local neighborhood watch group, right? which would be bad news for you if you're doing something illegal. Like watching a South Korean drama, for example. It would be bad news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or consuming uh, Voice of America or something like that. Now, obviously, the North Korean state does this for its own reasons, you know, to protect state security. But here's a question for you, though. Is this an unequivocal good for the North Korean state? That is a a good question. It is a central question of a lot of research that looks at this comparatively. Why do autocratic states, in particular, single party? North Korea is a so-called single party state. The Korean Workers' Party sort of orders much of society. It defines the state to a large extent. And there's a a paradox therein where 
the people don't trust the state and the, and the state doesn't trust the people. So what happens in these situations? Well, they try to collect information to the extent that they can so that they can understand what people are thinking and what they're doing and whether or not it's a challenge to state authority or a threat to the stability of the regime. And they foster a sense of paranoia and distrust. And I think for an autocratic state, it's a sort of, it's a strategy of keeping sort of the population down because mm-hmm. they're afraid if they know too much that they may seek an alternative. In the North Korean case, it's, the alternative is clear. It's South Korea, yeah. which is the other Korea. So in this case, I think from the state's perspective in North Korea, it's probably good. I don't think that is good generally. But if, the, if you are a, uh, a, part, a party cadre whose responsibility is to ensure that the information environment stays within the borders of North Korea, using the, you know, at your disposal all of the levers of the state to ensure that information doesn't flow freely and people stay relatively ignorant, I guess would be good from your perspective. Yeah, but I, I wonder whether that, that, there must be a downside for the North Korean state too. Like, uh, for example, North Korea's economy always struggles and uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, innovation or creativity, this lack of social trust and the breaking down of weak ties, could that be... Um, a downside, you know, could that be a negative effect of of the North Korean state's activities to minimize that so that uh, general social trust? I think if they are seeking to promote sort of market activity, markets themselves, and trust within the markets, obviously, because you know a lot of economic exchange is based on trust and understanding and information about prices, about people, about supply chains and networks, and in that sense, it, it is a challenge mm-hmm. for North Korea's sort of so-called, you know, new class of entrepreneurs and the state persons with whom they have to interact. It is obviously a Right, because you're always wondering, can I trust this guy beyond today? Can I trust him tomorrow? Markets don't operate very well when there's low levels of trust. Right. That's not my area of expertise, but I'm sure that the, uh, the research is going to back that one up. Yeah. Okay, so your, your second takeaway message from your report, that friends and family are trusted sources and conduits of information dissemination. Now, that seems like a no-brainer, but why is it important and what can its broader implications be? It's important because it sort of, it underscores what we know. It's kind of proving the obvious to an extent, which is that the state has co-opted social relations in North Korea for its own objectives, of which we were just sort of talking about, which is to control the information environment. So we find evidence of that. When we give people the opportunity to tell us, given like a hypothetical information profile that states where the information came from, that is who it came from, something they don't know, a family member, a friend, where it came from, in a market, they encountered it within their own home or somewhere outside like a park, and what kind of media it is. It tells us that people are only really willing to trust those who are most closest to them. That is, there are no weak ties, really, Mm -hmm. in North Korea, and it's another way of looking at that. Further, in analyzing our data and looking at sort of our um, sort of open text interview answers, we're able to sort of understand some important points, which is people, for instance, are more likely to trust family members. But what we see is they're less likely to want to exchange information in a vulnerable place, like a park outside. But markets are kind of an interesting sort of... uh, conduit of, of, of exchange whereby those who they trust, who may, they interact with at a market, mm-hmm. may provide a sort of avenue for some information dissemination. So I think it's important because it helps us understand what is going on in North Korea. And then for those who are trying to put together information 
packets yep. on a USB right. or on a uh, SD drive. They are thinking about who they're going to give this to and how they're going to encourage their interlocutors to disseminate that information. So we're able to find some sort of uh, opportunities for information dissemination despite all of the challenges, the massive challenges that the North Korean state puts up in society. Mm-hmm. Okay. Third uh, key takeaway, markets are, and this is following on from what you were saying, markets are less favored for foreign content acquisition than one's home or the homes of others. But the least favored place is general outdoor locations. I'm guessing that if someone were to send a USB disk by balloon from South Korea and it would land somewhere in North Korea, that would be the least favored place? Is that kind of an example of that? That'd be a very concrete example of something that actually happens. Okay, yeah. so, so rather than that, it, it'd be better, better be in a marketplace and even better than that would be in a friend's house and better than that would be in your family's house. That's fair to say. Yeah, so, yeah, okay, that's very clear. You're, you're dealing with people who've been in, in South Korea relatively recently. To what extent have DVDs been phased out in North Korea and have things moved on to either USBs or, or mini SD disks? Did you look into that? Was that something that came up? We didn't uh, sort of study that with our respondents, but we had sort of advisory sessions with the NGOs who do this, mm-hmm. and they sort of helped us design our questionnaire and the sort of attributes which define these information profiles that we were putting in front of our respondents to get their input on. And, you know, the, these SD chips. Yeah, like the kind you can put on your phone for extra memory, right? I indeed. Guess. And, yeah. you know, those are some very recent example. There was a business person who sold a South Korean drama on one of these little SD drives that yeah. was caught. Ah. But it, not to focus necessarily on that, on that less than ideal outcome for yeah. the parties, but things which can be hidden. Yep. that are easy to travel with, that yeah. uh, are easy to send across the border in mass are ideal. DVDs are still used, as I understand it, ah. but they are less preferred. I mean, DVDs are clunky. A yeah. USB drive is concealable. Right. And if you're, I don't know what, what the most popular kind of DVD drive is in North Korea, but if you're using a DVD drive that you know has a, a drawer that, that goes in, the, the favorite trick of the state security agency in North Korea is to simply shut down the electricity to a building and then go in and see what's in people's, um, used to be VHS machines, and now it's uh, DVD drives. And if, if your thing's stuck in a drawer and you can't get it out in time, then you're in trouble. But an SD disk, you can usually uh, you know, hide it somewhere, get it out and hide it. Indeed. The, yeah. most, the most favored medium mm. of information was a USB stick. Ah, okay. So it's what the people want. Yeah. All right. Fourth uh, takeaway, information dissemination strategies that rely on markets and commercial activities must reckon with the state's relentless drive to control all activity outside the home. And I'm thinking about marketplaces, and I'm reminded of the, uh, the Netflix drama series uh, Crash Landing on You. Mm-hmm. It was an early episode in which a marketplace was shown in, in North Korea, a fictional North Korean marketplace, and some of the sellers had South Korean contraband products hidden under their stalls that could be brought out for trusted customers only. Is that the kind of scene that we're thinking of? I mean, how regulated are markets for media and information dissemination? Well, first of all, the regulation of markets overall ebbs and flows. Ah. North Korea has entered this sort of uncomfortable post-socialist transition period where at some times it seems to be heading towards a Vietnam or Chinese model, and other times it seems to, the state seems to be sort of clawing back at the space that it has allowed for the freedom to engage in commerce and to exchange ideas. I think, not to go off on a tangent here, but I think there's an interesting sort of tension here where my co-author and colleague, Peter Ward, is been talking about this a little bit more recently. He's followed this quite closely, where you see sort of a willingness to uh, relax 
the state seem, is willing to relax its control over market activity and commercial activity, but at the same time wants to sort of reinforce social control, mm-hmm. right? Because they know what happens when you open up space for the exchange of goods and services. Well, you also open up you know, the opportunity for the exchange of what it would deem illicit content, which is to your question. Yeah. Do they regulate this? Well, to the extent that those who are around are willing to regulate it and enforce it, we know that there are those who are tasked with enforcing laws who want to break them in order to watch a show themselves. Mm. And we also know that there's a lot of rent-seeking going on, or rather bribery, ah. that uh, in, in order to lessen your punishment or get away with it altogether, you bribe someone. So, I mean, the state is, is totally regulating it theoretically, mm. uh, because none of it is allowed. Right, okay. The extent to which it is enforced is really hard to know. And that's where we rely on our partners at Daily NK and others who, who are able to, on a consistent basis, take information outside of North Korea to understand the extent to which the reactionary ideology and culture exclusion law is being implemented or this new language purity law. Mm. Okay, and, that, and that'll obviously yeah, differ according to time and place, to what extent that crackdown is, uh, is effective. So fifth point there, North Koreans are unlikely to share information with strangers might share with a neighbor and are unlikely to share with friends and family. So that seems to be quite logical and obvious given what we've just said before. But t- what, tell us what the ramifications of this are. Does it mean that, that information is much more slow to, to like a rumor or a, or a fact is much more slow to trickle through North Korean society because it has to go, first of all, within a family and then between friends and then to another family and, you know, rather than spreading it through strangers? Yeah, and you can see the sort of social basis of, of an information-disrupted society because there is no free media, no free press. There's a tight control over what you can say and how you can say it. You can't say anything that sort of contravenes like official ideology, laws, and norms. It seems amazing that in, in, in the uh, almost 80 years now that the existence of the North Korean state, that if you, sorry, to go back, if you think about the Soviet Union, there were Samizdat copies of books that were illegal that were passed around in the underground and there were there were chains of information and there were ways of getting things out there and in East Germany as well they were able to uh, for example in Leipzig they were able to to call up demonstrations that obviously weren't state sanctioned but in North Korea it's really such an outlier that it's been so successful for so long right what do you put that down to that's a such a hard question to ask I was just thinking about that Uh, Peter and I were talking about the paper and for this interview, and I said, is there any state that's more autocratic mm. than North Korea? And we agree that's at least in the top three, if not number one. Yeah, Least free, most autocratic, high state capacity and willingness to enforce it, and unwillingness to tolerate you know, the free exchange of information, of foreign media consumption. I mean, I think for those of us who study North Korea, watch North Korea, spend time around it, after a while, you be the, the ludicrousness of the mm. situation becomes almost normalized. Right. That sometimes you need to take a step back and put it in comparative perspective or just walk away from it for a bit and you come back to it and you think, my goodness. Yeah. Like this is a, a, an absurd situation where you can't, as a North Korean citizen, watch a South Korean drama. I mean, I get annoyed when like, the user interface in my Netflix seems glitchy. <laughs> and here they are, you know, just to entertain themselves or breaking laws that could result in severe punishment. Could result in, could, could in the extreme cases, possibly result in long imprisonment or death. Indeed. And while alternative or like cases, so we're talking about the autocratic party states, the Soviet republics are many of such examples. East Germany is a, is, a, is a commonly cited one. Cuba is another. China today. Mm-hmm. They also engage in similar information control, but they don't do it so vigorously. 
And it's, it makes North Korea sort of an interesting edge case of extraordinarily tight and draconian control of information. And I think it only underscores both the interesting nature of the question related to anything about that observation. So it's almost puzzling. Also, on that other side of the coin, sort of um, maybe the importance of us thinking about ways to break through that barrier. Mm. I mean, I personally wish for North Koreans to live more freely, as I do people anywhere, as a universal principle. What do you do about that, though? It's a tough question. So yeah. this, this is our attempt to contribute positively towards solutions. To your, uh, your last takeaway point here, the North Korean state's information control strategies appear to be adapted to the peculiarities of North Korean society. On the surface, that seems obvious, but what do you mean here, and, and how, would we, how would we expect this to be different in another non-democratic, autocratic society with, uh, with strong social and information control strategies? It's a good question. It's a hard question. Yeah. You know, I, I think about just the fact that Korea is a divided society in both Pyongyang and Seoul, you know, stake their claims to be the rightful rulers of the peninsula. And that is a game changer in terms of us understanding both countries, but in this case, North Korea. So, you know, North Korea in this case needs to dissuade from their perspective the consumption of information which casts them in a less than good light that makes them seem like the second, third, or fourth rate Korea on the peninsula. Yeah. And that's unique. You know, divided Germany was another case that was that was a bit like Korea, where we could draw parallels. Uh, there are some considerable differences. I mean, East Germany was as was more pluralistic or open than North Korea has probably ever been, mm. and so that makes North Korea unique. How would we expect things to be similar to or different from other similar cases? And I think when we say similar cases, or maybe I'm saying that. Mm. I'm thinking about party states. I think in the academic, I, I don't want to take this off and to make it too abstract, but in the sort of political science circles, a lot of questions are being asked about the durability of particular types of autocratic regimes, and a lot of focus is being put on party states. So that is states that are run by a single party, the CCP, the Korean Workers' Party. The Baathist Party in Syria. Indeed. And there are political scientists who, who you know, spend a lot of time coding this from which then we, you know, depart with all sorts of research questions. Uh, and there's some good studies that look at the, the effort of single-party regimes, communist regimes in particular, to control information. And there's something about them where they seek to do that. Because not all autocratic regimes are so paranoid. Mm -mm. I mean, we can put myself on the spot here. But I don't know, let's, let's, let's pull out of our hat some autocracies. What's the first one that comes to mind? Uh, China. China, well, uh, they're, they're, they're going, I mean, they're like North Korea. They are seeking to sort of shut themselves off from the world to some extent. It's a big, porous country, of course, but the Great Firewall is the yeah. example of their attempt to wall its citizens in information-wise. Uh, Russia under Putin. Russia under Putin, and that's a good question. I was thinking about that on the way over, and while there's clearly, it's clearly not a free society, it's not as controlling, I think, as North Korea. Mm. And uh, as far as I know, you can still use Twitter X in Russia. I see users in the country making use of it. You can't use it in China, and you definitely can't use it in North Korea because no. you don't even have access to the internet. Think about the, the Gulf states, which are not democratic and are, are, are mm. probably reasonably classified as autocracy. Right. Uh, they, I mean, they, I don't think there's any—the leadership there doesn't have any quibbles with you getting on social media, mm. uh, for example. So there's something about party states, and there's something in particular about North Korea. I'm really, uh, I, I fight the urge and uh, I encourage all those around me from making claims that are essential 
essentialist claims that is sui generis that North Korea is unique and like none other. I wouldn't call it that. I just think it's sort of an extreme case. And I think some research, more research needs to be done understanding how that takes place in North Korea. Okay, uh, let's move on to an op-ed piece that you wrote with Peter Ward for NK News in March this year, so about a year and a bit after your uh, NGO report, called Friendship and Family Networks are Key to Getting Outside Info to North Koreans. Our listeners can find it on the website if they're looking. This was based on a longer article that you and Peter wrote and published in the same month in the journal Problems of Post-Communism called How Autocracies Disrupt Unsanctioned Information Flows the role of state power and social capital in North Korea. I think we can put a link to that in the show notes. I certainly hope so. Is this an expansion or an extension of the report that you wrote for the NGOs last year? Yeah, it's an, it's an academic version and then a knowledge translation piece, which we published with you good people. Oh, yeah. So by writing an op-ed for NK News, that, that points to the article and, and draws some suggestions from it. Again, uh, and we've already discussed this, so I'll just gloss over that this is kind of eliding that, that difference between academic research and advocacy. You, you've, you've stated very clearly that you believe in certain norms and, and you uh, would promote them as, as much as possible. I would. I also think that you know, there's not, they're not in contradiction to one another. You can approach something which you believe in and study it honestly. I'm not cooking the books or the data. I, I just want to, you know, questions are motivated for all sorts of reasons. They don't come to us in a vacuum. Right. I don't know. So one sentence in your op-ed stood out to me, so I'm going to read that one out uh, in full. By recognizing the importance of trust and space in information dissemination, we can work toward a more open and free society where information flows freely and people are empowered to shape their own futures. So tell me more. Are you talking about North Korea society specifically or societies in general? I suppose societies in general, but North Korea specifically here. It's quite a bold statement, isn't it? It is, but you know, there are some people, you'll find them on Twitter, you, some of you on this podcast, who would say that actually, you know, we've got to let North Koreans decide and to seek out information. If we, we shouldn't be sending it to them. It should be up to them to decide. Some others would say that North Koreans are in support of their own state, and so if they're not looking for outside information, why should we give it to them? Why should we send it to them? Should I address both of those? Go ahead. Points? Yeah, yeah please. Not? Well, the first, that North Koreans ought to be given the freedom to decide on their own. Well, they don't have that freedom because they don't have the information to begin with full stop. I don't think there's much more to say to that one. There is, as, as an aside though, and a nod to perhaps the motivation behind the criticism, of course, there are the organizations which are responsible for sending information and may have their own agenda. But from what I know, I'm not actively involved in putting together these information devices and sending them across through the networks that exist in the borderland space, that it's often giving the people simply what they want. What do they want? Well, they they want to know what's going on, so they want to be informed. I think there's a natural proclivity to understand what's going on in our world. Second, they want to be entertained, just like the rest of us. And watching North Korean television, as it were, is not going to satisfy either one of those preferences, because North Korean TV sucks. It is uh, desanitized, totally apolitical stuff about botany, or it's stuff to glorify the leadership of North Korea. This is not to say that people might not be proud to be North Korean or they not might not have they might not support their state. Perhaps they do. Perhaps they have pride and they do support their state. I'm in no position to judge that, but giving them the ability to access information they may want anyway is a separate matter. Yeah, during your uh, your interviews, you know, well, do you remember about a decade ago Sony Pictures released this movie The Interview? I do. And there were some groups that were very keen on flooding North Korea with copies of that on USB disks and SD cards and DVDs and stuff like that. I don't know whether they ever 
did send them in en masse. But I, I'm curious whether any of the interviewees who you talked to said, oh, yeah, you know, I watched that movie in North Korea and, you know, it, it fell flat, it made no impact, it got me defensive, or, hey, I thought it was funny and it made me leave. Have you ever heard of any North Korean who's ever watched that movie in North Korea? I have heard, I've met no one who has told me that. Have you? No, no. But, but you know, I, you've interviewed a lot more North Koreans, uh, refugees, than I have. So, yeah, I thought maybe you might have. So what does the, the term social capital mean and how does it apply uh, here in, in this discussion of uh, information networks and uh, disseminating information? Uh, social capital, it's a uh, it's slightly abstract idea, similar to its cousin's political capital. It is, I mean, you know, social capital, I don't, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's your position in society. Okay. It's, it's like, it's, it's uh, the currency you have to spend with relationships and the like. I still hate that. So what would be a real-life example then? Would, like a, would, would a teacher uh, in a community be someone who would be said to have high social capital or a, or a gang leader or, some, or, or a market stallholder? Well, you know, it's, um, money is a type of currency, sometimes called capital. Uh, you accumulate it in a bank account. You spend it to buy goods or purchase services. But social capital is, is a little bit different insofar as it's, it's sort of measured by uh, your standing in society, yeah. which can be sort of, you know, quantitatively captured by the number of relationships you have, um, uh, the type of trust that is developed between in individuals, cooperation, shared norms and values, and uh, social capital will vary from society to society and from individual to individual, but it's defined by, like, the relationships between individuals, the linkages between mm -hmm. them. And yeah, for break in there. I get that. So, so when we're talking about North Korea, where the state actively disrupts weaker social ties mm -hmm. uh, and, and dominates social relations, that seems like it can really kind of cancel out social capital. Social capital is very low in North Korea by design. Okay. The bonds between people are, are disrupted and co-opted or don't exist at all. Sort of weak ties between people are so these bridges that may connect one group to another group are hard to forge or just simply don't exist uh, in North Korea. And that this has huge implications for quality of life, quality of governance, to go back to your original mm. question, economic development, which was part of my answer to that original question, and a whole host of other indicators that researchers looking at social capital specifically will tell you about. Are there any kind of relationships that the North Korean state doesn't disrupt us severely, either by design or by accident? I think the relationship between like child and mother or father, for example, they Although you do read occasionally of the anecdotal stories of the kid who goes to school and says, oh, I saw mom and dad reading a funny book, you know, or something like that, and they get in trouble. Sure, but that would be outside the home, wherein that, mm. uh, that monitoring is taking place, poor kid. But, you know, that is uh, where we find in the survey interviews that we've done where people are sort of obviously and unsurprisingly comfortable consuming illicit content, which is within the home. But if you think about like social capital that is limited to a home space, isn't really much social capital at all in right. society. Outcomes are paranoia, distrust, inability to work well with others in say a commercial space, et cetera. Now you write in your um, op-ed piece that people with large friendship networks or big families may be key to getting information to wider North Korean audience. So you're sort of obviously looking for those key sort of hub people who have the, the higher levels of social capital. And you also write that relationships between people who do not have many mutual connections are crucial for spreading novel ideas and information. There seems to be a little bit of a contradiction here. Or maybe I'm just seeing it that way. But are you saying that both 
marketplaces and large friendship networks are more or less equally important in spreading information, or does one outweigh the other? Well, I think with the first statement, we're trying to be optimistic here, right? Like, we don't want to give up, in a sense. So what do we do? Where are the recommendations? Like, as an aside, it is very hard to write about. It's kind of, you know, depressing from a normative point of view, Mm. because it's very hard to see what the solution is. And I think there are colleagues who have written more recently on similar topics regarding the, the possibility of an emergence of civil society given, you know, limited marketization that has taken place in North Korea come to the same conclusion, which is there's just not really a lot of non-state associational life. And without such, you can't forge these ties between people who don't know one another, which was to your second point. Right. To the first, though, it's if trust exists between friends and families and people with more friends or families, then by extension are better able to distribute information if that's the way they want to use their their connections to their friends and families, which they may not. Mm-mm-mm. But that is sort of a an attempt at optimism. But the second point that seems like it's in contradiction is sort of just repeating the idea that weak ties are the foundation of associational life, of civil society, of non of of opposition to state control. So they're important. We were just sort of doubling down on that message. Now it it seems true as you say that foreign content that targets the North Korean consumer needs to be of interest to market wholesalers and their many retailer friends if it is to stand a chance of diffusing into broader society. So it makes me wonder what kind of content is of interest to market wholesalers. And just based on purely anecdotal information I've heard from some people, I imagine that uh, high up on the list might be technical knowledge of, of things like perhaps uh, fields of engineering or uh, things like you know, science and adult material. I don't know about the technical side. We didn't really probe that. No one really mentioned it among those who we talked to. And keep in mind, our sample is mm. what it is, you know, a sample of those who left North Korea, which I would add are those who are most likely to be engaging in uh, information circulation and consumption because they're going to be from the places where information arrives. So I don't know about the technical side of things like uh, engineering materials, say, or like a do-it-yourself sort of home kit for someone who wants to build a nice garden. I could see that as being in demand. Mm. I don't know anything about that. But on the the other item that you mentioned about adult content, mm. indeed, uh, and adult content is an- Big selling item? It, indeed. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's something which motivates uh, information usage. It's something people say they want to, they wanted to when they were there to use by use that, you know, consume. Mm-hmm. So what is that? I mean, we can define it. This is what we were able to do with our study, which was to kind of- put together information profile. Shall I read you one? Oh, you've got it. Oh, yeah, please read an information well, profile. Well, it, it's, it's, it's general, but I can tell you like the, the general characteristics, mm. not what type of drama. But interestingly, nonfiction is preferred over fiction. Hmm. They want content that is t- uh, targeted for uh, sort of middle-aged people, so they don't want older content or things meant for children. Hmm. They want it in video format. And uh, the, the subject most favored is South Korean, and they want it on a USB drive. So that's, they want something with a USB that is probably focused on information about South Korea. Right. I think one of the surprising sort of insights we learned from those who we talked to was that nonfiction over fiction was preferred, which was yeah. not what I expected. I expected to hear, I want to watch South Korean dramas, which they do. Yeah. But I think they're more interested about life in South Korea. Right. So those recent Netflix uh, documentary series about uh, cults in South Korea would be more popular than downloading uh, all of South Korean Wikipedia content onto USB, which I remember some other group, I don't know which group it was, but there were some groups that said, 
this is what we're doing. We're downloading the entirety of, of South Korean Wikipedia onto a USB and, and sending that into North Korea. From what we learned from our respondents, a documentary would be favored over an encyclopedia. Wow. Okay. So just get a whole bunch of EBS um, material onto, a, onto a, an SD card, I guess. Towards the end of your op-ed, you, you say that this makes it even more critical for non-governmental organizations and governments committed to broadening information access in North Korea to find innovative ways to overcome the challenges posed by the state's control over information and media. First of all, is there enough work being done by NGOs and governments in this area? It's a good question. I cannot honestly answer it. Okay. Uh, and it's interesting that although we in the outside world, you know, we, we spread information electronically, you say in your op-ed that actually it's people and their relationships that determine the flow of information. So it's kind of, it, it's going back to old school methods, old school tech, rather than uh, you can't send an email attachment or Dropbox uh, or, or Google Drive a file to somebody, right? So it's, it, we're talking about there's a spread of information through electronic forms, but the actual spread is being done through a very old school method. It is. I mean, you think about the way we engage with content now. We open up our X app yeah. and we make dozens of these sort of, we could, you could claim weak ties within a matter of minutes and we can access information from all over. Of course, those networks are influenced by who we follow and what we like, what we block and what we downvote. But in North Korea, it's, it's old school, as you say. You have to actually hand someone mm. something. It's a very different situation. And those NGOs which are engaged in this, they know that. Yeah. And I think that the government interlocutors and supporters largely understand that as well. So to go back to the, that, those methods of dissemination, so in, in terms of what people are most likely to receive and to look at, that have to get it from someone they know rather than finding it in a field having dropped from the sky. So, that, so in, in terms of the different NGOs, those NGOs that are helping people get it across the border through physical means rather than those who are sending it in helium balloons across the demilitarized zone, uh, the first group would be more, more popular with, uh, with North Koreans, I guess. Indeed. If I was advising a strategy for successful information you know, distribution, yeah. I wouldn't advise sending it over a balloon. I don't think the balloon launches are necessarily about the information getting used, would be my, uh, my guess. I think it's, it's sort of symbolic, isn't it? There has been some criticism that, that some groups are uh, yeah, doing it for show to make sure that, that funding continues. But yeah, that's an interesting, that's beyond the remit of your area of study. But yeah, it's certainly it is. a topic that people talk about. I would say maybe that is a possible interpretation. Another one is like, we're going to do this in defiance of what you tell us we cannot. And, oh, uh, yeah. you know, very contentiously, that applies to both South and North Korean governments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in any case, not to get sidetracked by that, because that was not the focus of our study, but mm. based upon what we did learn, that would not be our advisable method. Indeed not. Okay. Final thoughts, uh, Stephen Denny. Things that do you see any change? Do you see any, any hope? Any reasons for hope? I think that uh, the direction that we are going, it's going to become even more difficult because, you know, the, the other variable, which we didn't really explore much here, is uh, the borderland. Mm. Uh, so that is China. It's much more difficult to operate in the Sino-North Korean border space now than it was 10 years ago. We used to be able to walk up to the border yeah. in Tumen and, and just peer over uh, the border into North Korea. That's not an advisable thing to do anymore. So it's a reflection of the security environment there, which has become a bit more severe. So information is going to be harder to send in in that direction. So it's not a very optimistic outlook. No. 
and I wouldn't wish to fool anyone by saying I am optimistic. I, I'm not, but I think it's 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 all right to be uh, clear-headed, realistic, and uh, objective, and just understanding what this means. So at least maybe we can, if I can get on a more normative high horse, just you know understand what's at stake, the difficulties in securing a a world where people can, at the sound of at the the risk of sounding super cliche, live more freely. I, I do realize in, in using these kind of words, it sounds like you may be slipping into sort of a different sort of ideology. Mm. But uh, I do think a world in which you have the freedom to choose what you want to watch in the evening after your work is a better one than where you can't. I think most people would agree with that. Thank you. And that's where we're going to have to stop today. Stephen Denny, you'll find him on Twitter or X at uh, Stephen with a V, Denny, D-E-N-N-E-Y 86. We'll put a link in the show notes and links to the, the articles that I've uh, that we've discussed here today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jacko. Let me ask you this. You're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service, It's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? The absolute lack of commercial influences. No ads, no sponsored articles. It's just pure, objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists. And the best part? As a listener of this podcast, you get a 25% discount. All you have to do is use the coupon code PODCAST during your sign-up. So head over to careerpro.org slash podcast and start your journey with CareerPro. That's careerpro.org slash podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius Gabby Magnuson who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions and fixes the audio levels. Thank you and listen again next time. (laughs) 